Happy New Year again. I wonder how your New Year is going. I hope it's going well. You know, are you getting good food? Usually we are. You know, this is the season of uh, Advent. We're coming to the end. It's the Sunday next before Lent. And it's always interesting because Lent oftentimes uh, falls in the midst of Chinese New Year. Uh, Lent begins this coming Wednesday with Ash Wednesday. And uh, you, you think about the juxtaposition, you know, New Year is when we uh, indulge, sometimes more than we should, in many ways, enjoying life and you enjoying meals, meeting up with people. I don't know for you, about you, I, my first lohe was like two weeks ago, right? A friend invited because there's so many people who want to meet up and, and, and catch up and, and things like that. Uh, but it's, it's a time of indulgence almost. Lent in the Christian calendar is the exact opposite, right? We take to heart the injunction of Jesus, you know, if any man come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And, and because of that, you know, this uh, day, Sunday, is also called Shrove Sunday. Uh, Tuesday is called Shrove Tuesday, out of which you get the term Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras literally means Fat Tuesday. And the idea is because in um, uh, many older traditions, you know, they stop taking fat, they stop eating meat. Shrove Sunday is the day where you consume all the meat in your house, you know, and, and some of us take it to heart, right? Later on, you're going for a good steak dinner or whatever <laughs> the case may be. Uh, but, you know, you prepare yourself for a time of fasting and of leanness, so to speak. And some people have taken it over, overboard because, you know, Shrove Tuesday, Mardi Gras, Carnival, all that comes from the Christian tradition originally, but then they indulge themselves and they over-imbibe, over-eat, and over-celebrate in that sense. But today I want to share some thoughts. Uh, I'll say all that by way of introduction and just to get uh, us in the mood or ready to uh, hear God's Word. But um, in particular, this passage from Second Corinthians. And this verse, in fact, from the passage stood out for me. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And Epiphany, of course, is a season in which we remind ourselves that it is God who revealed himself to us. That God is, you know, so far above us that we can't think our way to God. We can't, you know, sort of uh, logically deduce our way to God. Inevitably, when we do that, what we tend to do, and this is true of so much of human history, is what happens is we basically create a God in our own image. You know, you take all your human uh, aspirations and desires and feelings and you project it onto God and we say, that's God. But nothing could be further from the truth. You know, instead, Christianity tells us we only know God because He chose to reveal Himself to us. And in this verse, it points out that ultimately that revelation is found in Jesus Christ Himself. And <clears throat> pick up the passage from verse 3. It says there, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And I think we understand this instinctually. Chinese New Year, for us, those of us who are Chinese and celebrate the New Year, and even if you don't, 
it's often a time in which uh, you meet people you don't normally meet through the year, right? Uh, for, for, for me, we have less and less <laughs> relatives. I'm getting on to that age where a lot of the elders seem to have uh, passed on. And so you have less places to visit. But nonetheless, when we do get there, we often find relations we don't see any other time of the year. And I often uh, think it's, it's, it's um, a rich environment for us to really um, spread the love of Jesus to those whom we don't normally necessarily uh, uh, mix with. And earlier in the passage on 2 Corinthians, you know, Paul talks about the fact that we are the aroma of Christ. You know, to some it's the aroma of life, to others it's the aroma of death. And it's in that context he talked about how even in um, uh, the people of God, that their faces, uh, they were veiled. You know, they couldn't see. They were blind to what God was doing. And I don't know if you've ever tried to share the gospel with your loved ones, with your family members. There are some people in our families, you know, no matter what you say, nothing seems to get through. And sometimes you can despair and you wonder, oh, maybe I'm not very good at sharing the gospel. Maybe that's true. But more often than not, it's not just about the words that you speak. There's something that, you know, uh, seems to cloud their eyes. People don't get it. You know, and, and it says here in Scripture that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. And I think Paul, although he speaks about the God of this world, you know, in our baptismal vows, we are reminded that it's the world, the flesh, and the devil, <laughs> that we struggle against, that there are opponents against us, that the systems of this world, plus our own fleshly desires, and we should never discount the fact that there is an evil one, you know, who is seeking to steal and kill and destroy. That all these things conspire against us. But may I suggest to you, it is not only unbelievers who are blind, even us as Christians at times can be blind to the gospel. This past week, uh, or, or uh, earlier last week, not last Friday, Friday before, uh, um, uh, beloved uh, um, Lutheran theologian by the name of Rod Rosenblatt passed away. And he was very influential in a lot of my friends' lives. I've never met him. Well, I did meet him once personally, but uh, didn't really get to know him. But, you know, he, he had uh, uh, a word that was so in season for people who have been broken by the church, who have found themselves, you know, um, um, uh, broken on, on the law that is preached in the church, the moralism that oftentimes accompanies uh, um, uh, a lot of Christian circles, especially those of us who are evangelicals. And he wrote a very interesting uh, article, which, you know, all, all these things, sometimes when you pass away, <laughs> the links all come back up. And so I, I was clicking through and, you know, reading the obituaries, and then I, I came across his article entitled, Christ Died for the Sins of Christians Too. Intriguing title, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Right? We, we should say that's no-brainer. But you see, the problem is this. So often as Christians, our paradigm is that the gospel is for justification, which it is. That, you know, we receive the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and we know that we are justified by faith, i.e. we understand that it is what uh, um, um, brings us into eternal life, 
right? What Jesus has done on the cross for us gets us there. But we fail to recognize what uh, Rod Rosenblatt is talking about. He said the gospel is also necessary for sanctification. Theologians have, um, you know, broken up salvation into several parts. Justification is where, you know, we stand before God and we are righteous in His eyes. That the, the relationship, the reconciliation has taken place. That we are no longer separated from Him because of our sin, because our sins are forgiven. But sanctification is the ongoing work of salvation in the life of the believer. And oftentimes we, we tend to uh, think, and I've even found myself thinking this way, it's almost like Christianity is a bait-and-switch religion. <laughs> right? You come to Christ by faith. But then after that, you become a Christian, it's all by works. That you have to work out your salvation through fear and trembling, for example. You know, that you know that you're saved, you need to pray more. You need to uh, uh, study harder. And no, hear me correctly, uh, I'm not saying don't pray, don't study the Word of God, right? Read your Bible, pray every day and you grow, grow, grow. That's absolutely true. But the idea that we do it it's all, you know, if it's to be, it depends on me. And it's so perverse that even sometimes we would say to ourselves, I need to surrender more. <laughs> you know, and this idea that it is something that I have to do to put myself right before God, you know, and, and the question is, you know, what am I holding back from God? And it can be uh, a question that plagues us. But it's really coming from this uh, uh, narrative in which we say, I obey, therefore I'm accepted by God. That we think that God accepts us because of what we have done. Right? Even though we know that's not the case. But the, our actions speak louder. You know that verse, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, actually doesn't stop there. If you go and you read it in Ephesians 4, it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you to will and to do that which He purposes in your life. And so what Rod Rosenblatt was pointing out is, you know, despite the fact that our default is moralism, despite the fact, I, some of you are old enough, you remember that little Jack Horner sat in the corner eating his Christmas pie. He stuck in his thumb and pulled out a plum and said, what a good boy am I, <laughs> you know? And this idea in which you, you have to be good enough for God. This, this idea that I have to obey, therefore I will be accepted. But the gospel actually teaches us that I am accepted and loved. Therefore, I obey. I am accepted and loved because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for me. Therefore, I live in righteousness. I live into the righteousness God has made right for me. And, and let me quote Rod Rosenblatt because it, it, it's, it's simple thought, but I think a very freeing thought when we begin to understand this. In his article, Christ Died for the Sins of Christians, so you can Google it and find it. It was something he wrote in 2003 in Modern Reformation, a, a magazine that comes out and still in publication today. But he said this, the most important thing to remember is that the death of Christ was in fact a death even for Christian failure. You know, you, you meet uh, a failure as a Christian and sometimes like there seems to be no coming back. You know, um, 
I need to be cautious <laughs> what I share. But as you know, I'm in a different church, also ministering. In fact, I was at the service earlier and then I rushed back because I had to preach here. And um, it's interesting that I run into people who were from different churches before I landed in this church. And inevitably, I didn't ask whether it was because of, but sometimes their history comes up. You know, and you, you realize something had happened in their life. <laughs> and there was some kind of failure, some kind of failing. And they find it very difficult to stay in their own church because there's so much judgment there. And, you know, they, yet they know the Lord's never abandoned them. They've got to go look for another place. You know, and, and that uh, sometimes is the case. So, so, and it happens in every church, not just this church that I'm, I'm ministering in. But it reminds me of that reality. And that's what Rod is saying, you know, that Christ died not just for uh, uh, your failure as a non-Christian, but even as Christians when we fail. Christ's death saves even Christians from sin. There's always room at the cross for unbelievers, it seems. And we always seem to have room for them, you know, that they, there's repentance for them, there's forgiveness, that, you know, they can be uh, uh, transformed and reformed. But we ought to also be telling people that there is room at the cross for Christians too. Like I was saying, you know, that he, 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 one of his passions was for people who've been broken by the church. You know, this moral performance narrative is so strong and, and rightly distinguishing for him because he's Lutheran. He understood that the reformers wanted to distinguish between law and gospel. That there are three uses of the law theologians teach us. Number one is the civil use of the law, which we see in civil society, that we need the law to restrain sin. Right? We, we, we need to know you cannot speed. <laughs> Otherwise, there are consequences. Right? That there are laws against stealing, laws against uh, all kinds of other things that you, you have to restrain society because we, we are sinful people living in the midst of sinful people that the law has its civil uses. But theologically, there's a second use, which is theological use. And the law teaches us that we cannot come to God on our own, that we fall short, that we are totally inadequate to save ourselves. And therefore, we then have to look to a Savior outside ourselves that we need someone to save us from ourselves. That's the theological use of the law. But there's also a third, which is the didactic use of the law. And the fact is that the law also teaches us how God wants us to live, how life was intended to be lived. And, and there's a place for that. But the reality is that, you know, so often when we forget the use of the law and we turn the law into gospel, we turn the law into thinking like the law will change people's hearts. That the law has the capacity to make you do what it commands. You know this. I've said it. You, you think for yourself, just because you know what you ought not to do doesn't mean you won't do it. That our hearts are, you know, desperately wicked. Right? That there's, there's something deep within us that makes us do that which we don't want to do. And the things which we know we ought not to do, we find ourselves doing. Right? And Paul had to say, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? 
that this fact that we are at the same time saint and sinner tells us that we need the gospel from first to last. The gospel is not just what gets us in the door of the church. But every step of the way of the Christian life, we need the gospel. We need this relief of what Jesus has done. That's what the second half of this passage tells us, verses 5 through 6, that the light has come. He says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That he came to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. But he did that by a declarative word, right? That as Jesus, uh, uh, Paul points out that as God created the heavens and the earth, right? God's word was a creative power, wasn't it? What did he do? He said, let there be light and what? There was light. When he said, let light shine out of darkness, that's exactly what happened. So that's why when Jesus, when, when God says to us, you are righteous, you are redeemed, you are saved, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. That word is not just a word of, you know, uh, uh, legal fiction. It's, it's, it's a creative word. It is a word that is, uh, forms us and forms us in his image. And it forms us because we now see who God is in Jesus Christ. That God is not this vengeful person who is waiting for you to step out of line and then start hurling lightning bolts to judge you. You know, and, and that's a, a, a mischaricature of who God is. That He is for you, He's not against you. That He loves you with an everlasting love. And you know, Paul was facing this question even in his day. That's why he had to write Second Corinthians that there was these super apostles. If you read through, you see that they were of a very different... You know, they used the methods of the world to promote themselves. Right, that their 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 ministries. That's why in verse five he says, we, "What we proclaim is not ourselves; <laughs> it's not about me. That we are merely servants of the Lord, and basically what we do is to point towards God. And in fact, earlier in the passage uh, we didn't read it; it's not part of our, our lectionary readings. But verses one and two tell us, you know, don't lose heart in the ministry to which God has called you. And mind you, this it's not just someone like me who's you know, got a collar and I've been ordained and, you know, I'm, I'm paid full-time by the church has a ministry. All of us have a ministry. All of us are called to minister. And it's very easy to lose heart. Very easy to lose heart in sharing the gospel with your loved ones. Very easy to lose heart in, in doing the good that God has called you to do in your uh, um, secular environment and secular work. But don't lose heart. And also this, renounce disgraceful, underhanded ways, which was the ways in which the opponents of Paul operated, right? They were using uh, uh, cunning. In other words, they know how to manipulate and uh, play politics. And believe me, you, you know, all of us encounter it one way or other. I've encountered people who've entered into a ministry, ask them, oh, why do you oh, say, oh, I, I can't, can't stand office politics. And I start laughing at them. Say, <laughs> so you come into the church, you think don't have politics. 
also God, okay? You know, wherever there are people, there are politics. <laughs> you know, that, that's the reality. But uh, we are called to a higher standard. And the Lord, he, he tell, you know, Paul says, don't tamper with God's word. We don't try and manipulate and practice cunning. And the way in which that happens ultimately is in Jesus Christ, in understanding the gospel, that it is God's work from first to last. Often the manipulation takes place because we believe it's to be, it's up to me. That I have to make it happen. But when we understand it is God who makes it happen, then we don't try and, you know, bait and switch, trick people into uh, saying the sinner's prayer, you know, or or, uh, pretend uh, uh, that, you know, Christianity is something that it's not. And ultimately, we understand this. I conclude, short sermon, huh? Yeah. Because then you can go off and do your New Year stuff. I, I conclude bringing us back to the gospel passage. The readings all point towards the transfiguration. This is not Transfiguration Sunday for us in the Church of England. It is for some of the other traditions. Because we actually have a Transfiguration Sunday later on in the year. I think in August or something like that. Uh, but nonetheless, we are reminded of what happened. And you know the story, right? That uh, Peter, James and John go up into the mountains with Jesus to pray and then suddenly there appear Elijah and Moses. wonder how they know it was Elijah and Moses, right? They never met them before. One lived 800 years, one over 1,000 years before their time. And yet, somehow they recognized it. And I think that's kind of what will happen in our resurrection bodies. We'll recognize one another. But that's another story altogether. But the story is picked up and, and we are told, you know, Peter, the one who has the foot and mouth syndrome, right? <laughs> Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let's make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And I, I love that uh, there's the um, subtext because Mark, uh, the Gospel of Mark, is believed was written um, uh, on the accounts of Peter. So Peter was narrating to Mark. Mark wrote the Gospel. And that's why Mark understood what was going on, why Peter said those things. His motivation is known here. For he did not know what to say, for here they were terrified. Right? He's this extrovert. The mouth just runs when he's nervous or frightened or afraid. And, and that's what happened. But, you know, you stop and you think about it. Why did Peter want to do that? He wanted to capture the moment, isn't it? Not just capture it, but, you know turn it into something that he could then maybe manipulate and and control. But it's telling what Jesus, uh, uh, God the Father said, because the cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. And you know, if you know your Old Testament, right? You know, when God showed up in the Old Testament, His presence was often in the cloud. Yeah, this, 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 the, the heaviness of His glory uh, manifest as a cloud. And the voice came and it said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Peter was trying to put Jesus on par with Moses and Elijah. Let's have three tents here. But God was saying, no. Moses, the law, Elijah, the prophets, also need to listen to Jesus. And I mean, if you think about the revealed Word of God, the law, the prophets, and the apostles, (laughs) Peter, James, and John uh, 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 sort of represent that. They were all told, let's look to Jesus. 
who is the author and finisher of our faith. And as we go from here, that's the uh, way I hope will give us hope and, and, and life to remember that the law does not come to reform us as the sinners, nor to show us the narrow way, but to crush us. All our pretense that we can do it on our own, or through personal effort, or even with cooperation, that our righteousness are as filthy rags, that it needs to come from outside ourselves to fulfill the law's demand. That ultimately, you know, we uh, cannot hide behind our fig leaves, but come to Him in honesty, and we can only be clothed in Christ's righteousness. That the law comes to proclaim judgment and death, but the gospel comes to proclaim justification and life. And that's the good news of Jesus Christ. That is the hope in, to which we cling and hang on to. And may that be the blessing you receive this new year. Amen? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word, this account in your word of the encounter the disciples had with Jesus, the transfigured one. To recognize who Jesus is to each and every one of us and how he embodies who you are to us. That this good news of the gospel comes through Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that as we enter into this new year, that this word carries us through into the life you have called us to. That we see it's not by our achievements or our performance that we are justified, but really wholly 100% in you, that we can rest in you. And that from this place of restedness, we can begin to live the life you've called us to live. That we become witnesses for you, we become the fragrance of you wherever you carry us. May that be an empowering word for each and every one of us this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Church, let us stand as we declare the Apostle Creed. This is our faith. <clears throat> 